You know, maybe it's the leaves changing, but this week I was reflecting on my childhood home. Before I moved out to the country with my family, I was about 10 years old when we moved out to the country. Before that, we lived right smack dab in the middle of my Rust Belt town called Richmond, Indiana, on a street called Forest Drive. Now, it was called Forest Drive because about a quarter of our town had a park running through it called Glen Miller Park. It's a typical Rust Belt town. At one point, it had prosperity. It had a thriving downtown that's mostly boarded up now, and it has beautiful parks speckled all over it. It's not a well-off town anymore, but the parks remain. And our home backed up to Glen Miller Park. And I remember seeing that forest of deciduous trees every night sitting at our dining room table and wishing and daydreaming about being out amongst them instead of sitting at that table with my wonderful family. Because every night, whether you liked it or not, we always sat down for dinner together. My dad would get home. I later found out to go back to work after we had went to bed. My brother, my sister, and I would sit down. My mom would make us a wonderful meal. She's an incredible cook, but good cooking is wasted on children, mothers. <laughs> uh, as a child, I can affirm that. I hated it, and it's amazing now that I'm an adult. I can own that. And it normally had about the same rhythm together. My dad would always ask a question looking backwards. What did you learn in school today? I found myself, I asked my son the exact same question. And just like I did, he never wants to answer me. I don't know what it is in a child's heart. They never want to tell you what they learned in school. But my brother and my sister and I, I'm the youngest uh, and kind of the class clown. We would all have to talk about what had gone before us. It was a time to remember and reflect on the day. But it was also a time to just be together, right? As our schedules were getting busier, the older that we got, it was an anchor point for our family where we would sit down together and, and commune together. We'd speak to one another. I remember spending much of that time trying to get my brother and sister to laugh because that was my role in the family. And we would do our thing, right? As we communed together at dinner. But then it was also a time, because it was when we were all together, that we would plan the next day. My mother would give us her agenda for the next day, and then we would try to co-opt it, right? We would express our hopes for the next day, what we hoped we would be able to do, but normally we did what our mother asked us. It was a time to remember. It was a time to commune. It was a time to hope. And it's interesting, J. Todd Billings, who's one of my favorite Calvin scholars, wrote a really good book on the Eucharist called Remembrance, Communion, and Hope. Because in the Eucharist, this is exactly what we do, don't we? We come together and we remember what Christ has accomplished for us. And we need to do that every week because what are we? We are prone to forget. Like the Israelites, like the disciples... All of us are prone to forget the goodness of God. And so each week we are called to come together to remember what Christ has done. But it's also a time of present communion. We believe that Christ is actually present with us at his table. When he invites his children to come and dine with him, the host isn't absent. He actually communes with us and we get to commune with one another. It's a time of communion. But not only that, it's also a time of hope. A time in which we look ahead to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Recognizing that one of the primary images of the new heavens and the new earth is a party. Where we are all invited as the bride and the groom come together. 
and the eternal union of the new heavens and the new earth. As we continue in our series through the shape of the liturgy, we've been preaching through all the different components of the liturgy. It's called the shape of the liturgy, how the liturgy is shaped and how the liturgy shapes us. We recognize that our service has a very clear structure and order. It has a clear shape, but it's shaped in such a way to shape us into a specific kind of people, into the image of Christ. And the Eucharist is no different. Every week we celebrate this meal together, and it has a specific shape. So for the next two weeks, because the Eucharist is so important, we need two weeks on it, we're going to look at the shape of the Eucharist. This week we will look at its fundamental shape as a time of remembrance, a time of communion, and as a time of hope. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the words of institution in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here are what the church have called the words of institution. These words throughout the history of the church have always been proclaimed before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, it's interesting. The reason why we always say these words before the Lord's Supper is because these are the words the Lord said at his last supper with his disciples, which, as it turns out, is the first Lord's Supper. So it's interesting. Often in your Bibles, you'll see the Last Supper, but the Last Supper, as it turns out, is the first supper of the church, the meal that we eat together and have eaten together since the time of Christ. Now, it's important to remember that at the very beginning, the image that cries out for attention is the words remembrance. Two times, Jesus says, this is a time to remember. This is my body, which is for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is a time in which we remember what? What do the bread and the wine reveal? That Christ's body was broken for us. That his blood was poured out on our behalf. This is a time in which we remember the costly nature of our salvation. You know, God, God is God. God can do anything that he wants to do. God could snap his fingers and all of a sudden the world is redeemed right? Theoretically, that's what he could have done. That's not what he did. Rather, he chose to reveal himself to us as the loving God who loves us all the way to the point of his son's death, who loves us all the way to the point of his own death, who chose to redeem us with a costly love. Notice, what do we remember? We remember God's great love for us in the Eucharist. That the very foundation of this breaking of Christ's body, the shedding of his blood, the impetus through which he came to us 
was his choice to love us while we were still dead in our sins, while we were still enemies of God, he chose to love you. And so each week when we come and celebrate the Eucharist, we are reminded God loves me this much that his very son died for me. God loves me this much that he died for me in the son. But it's also important that we remember something else. It's important that we remember that that work is accomplished. It's not a maybe. It's not an if. It's not a, you know, do these things and then the work will be accomplished. He accomplished the work for you. Right now I'm reading a book. Um, It's a fascinating guy. I can't remember his name right now. He was Roman Abramovich's lawyer. And he's also one of the best historians of the time. Roman Abramovich owns Chelsea Football Club. It doesn't matter. Anyway, he wrote this really interesting... The guy's probably... I'm not going to say what I think. But anyway, this guy's a genius. He's he's like a cajillionaire lawyer, and he's a phenomenal historian. And he wrote this really good book on um, medieval pilgrimages. My friend Kyle sent it to me. So you got to read this book. So I started it. And what's fascinating is when you read about medieval pilgrimages... It's less about the pilgrimage and it's more about medieval piety. And medieval piety was fueled by terror. Terror that they believed the majority of the human race was damned. And that if they didn't go through the sacerdotal system, they were definitely going to purgatory for a long time and probably were just going to hell. And so what did you do? You went on a pilgrimage to try to salvage a place in heaven. But what does the Eucharist reveal to us, family? What was the good news of the Reformation? God loves you. And the cross shows it. The cross proves it. It is not an if. It is not a maybe. It's if you have put your faith in him, he will love you yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's a word of assurance because so often in our lives, what do we feel? We feel a lack of assurance. It is a word of proclamation of remembering that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and you are brought to life. You don't have to live in terror. You get to live as an adopted son or daughter. But why else do we need to remember? You know, it's interesting. The Eucharist is connected with the Passover meal, isn't it? And what was the purpose of the Passover meal? The very first Passover meal was what? The angel of death was coming into Egypt. They sacrificed a lamb. They put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. And then the angel of death passed over the people of God. But then what happened next? God delivered them out of death through the Red Sea into the wilderness as they go to the promised land. Now, what is salvation look like in Christ? What does salvation in Christ look like? A lamb sacrificed for you to cover over your sins so that you might go through the greater Red Sea, the grave that Jesus Christ went into to bring you into the dry land of resurrection on the other side. But what did the Israelites perpetually do in the wilderness? They forgot. They forgot their deliverance. 
They forgot the miraculous nature that God took them out of slavery under this figure, Pharaoh, who is clearly typological for the devil, out of slavery under sin and brought them into life. And we do the same thing. We forget. We forget that our fundamental identity is not as sinner, but as redeemed saint, as redeemed child of God. And the Eucharist reminds us week in and week out who we are in Jesus Christ. Because I am prone to forget and you are prone to forget. And we need a reminder that our salvation came at a cost, but our salvation has come in Jesus Christ. First, the Eucharist is a remembrance. But many of you were raised in churches where that's all it was. It was just a remembrance. It's what's often called memorialism. And maybe if you're raised in a broad evangelical church, which is to some degree a descendant of the Anabaptist movement, that's what you were taught. However, it's interesting. We believe that it's not merely remembrance, although it is that. It is also a present communion. Look back at our text with me at verse 24. Jesus says, this is my body which is for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Now look, he says both. He does not say it's only remembrance, although it is remembrance. It also is his body. Now, for a moment, and I know that you all can hang, we need to get very theological, okay? And we need to set out the, the mapping of where we stand in the uh, world of theological belief, So on the one side, you have the memorialist view, which says it's only a memory because, well, bread and wine can't be the body and blood of Christ. So it's not the body and blood of Christ, right? What do they ultimately say is it has to be that to be that, and it's not that, so it's not that, right? It's just a memory. Really clear. On the other hand, you have uh, a Roman Catholic view, which is called transubstantiation. Now, I would like to... I'd like to make a caveat here. Uh, The more I read Thomas Aquinas, the more I actually think Thomas agrees with us, by the way. I really do. (laughs) I do. I do. Now, a popular understanding of transubstantiation, take those two words together, transubstantiation, it is transformed into the substance of Christ, which means ultimately what? It has to be that to be that, and it is that. Right? So it might look like bread, It might look like wine in what are called the accidents, meaning it tastes like bread, it looks like bread, it chews like bread, but in substance, it's the body of Christ. It might look like wine, taste like wine, you know, but it is the substance of Christ's blood. Now, we don't believe that because Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 teaches us that Christ has been sacrificed once and for all. But if that is transformed in the elements to the substance of Christ, what is happening? Every single week when I am breaking the bread for you, Christ is being tortured all over again. He's being broken apart all over again. He's being poured out all over again. So we neither affirm a mere memorialist view, nor do we affirm a transubstantiationist view. But what do we affirm? Well, in order to understand what we believe, you need to go back one chapter in the Bible because the Bible interprets the Bible. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 
and 17. And this is going to make, this is going to be, this is going to, there's going to reason I'm going here. Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Now, this word participation is the Greek word koinonia. Now, many of you are maybe raised in evangelical circles where the word koinonia was used for like small groups and fellowship time. What does koinonia mean? It means fellowship. It means friendship. It means partnership. It means that you're actually with that person. So what's going on here? Jesus says, this is my body. And then Paul says, well, we actually have a fellowship with his body when we participate in this bread and in this wine. Now, where is the body of Christ? Where is it? It's not everywhere. Christ's divinity is everywhere, but his body is locally situated at the right hand of the Father. A human body can't be everywhere all all at the same time. His divinity can, but his body isn't. It's at the right hand of God, interceding for us as our great high priest, lifting up our worship and praise to the Father. So what's happening? If we are communing with his body in in the bread and in the wine, it means that we go somewhere as a family. What the reformers taught is what ends up happening is that the Spirit lifts us into the very presence of Christ. So that while we might appear to just be in Littleton, Colorado on a beautiful fall day, we are somewhere far more beautiful. By the Spirit, we are lifted into the very throne room of God. Have you ever noticed that when we begin the Eucharist liturgy, we, I say, lift up your hearts, and you say, we lift them to the Lord. Well, who's the one who's ultimately lifting? The Spirit brings you into the presence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the payoff. That was all theological. I know that might have, the nerds here might have been like, well, that's interesting, or I already knew that, or that's wrong, whatever. (laughs) But here's the reality. Christ invites you to his table every week. And when he invites you, the host isn't absent. The host is present. And while you may see me, while you may see Carrie, while you may see Kyle or whoever is up here administering the bread and the wine, it is truly Christ who is speaking his words to you. Because the elements of the sacrament, the bread and the wine, they're what Augustine called visible words. They speak when they are administered. When Christ gathers his family together for a family meal, he tells the same story every week. I love you this much. I chose to take all of your sins upon myself. I love you this much. My blood was poured out to cover over you. I love you this much. I've brought you into my family. And just in case you're prone to forget it, that person across the aisle that annoys the living daylights out of you, I did the same thing for her. I did the same thing for him. Each week, the host, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords invites us to commune with him. 
Each week he says the same story. I love you this much. This is what your redemption cost. Family, why would we ever miss that? You know, I'm not a finger-wagging person. There are plenty of churches that are built on like, you know, the pastor bullying the congregation. That's not my style. You know that's not who I am. If, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that one-on-one with you. And I'll tell you things you don't want to hear. But let me tell you one thing. Why would you ever choose to miss that? Our priorities have become disordered. You know, I've never met a king. I've never even met a famous person. Kevin, we were at a men's event recently, and Kevin Taylor said, who's the most famous person you've met? I'm like, nobody. I haven't met anyone. I'm from rural Indiana. The Archbishop of Rwanda, that's probably the most famous person I've ever met. Well, the most probably, that's probably a better reason than, you know, whoever. But each week, a king invites you to his table. Each week, God invites you to his table. Why would you miss it? Why would we teach our children that it's appropriate to miss it? You know, in our family, we didn't miss dinner. And it created a family bond. May we create a family bond here by the Spirit. Of being together week in and week out. Of receiving that same word week in and week out. From our same King. This is how much I love you. I broke my body. I poured out my blood for you. And I guarantee you we will see a family form. Bonds of peace form. And lives transformed. First, it's a remembrance. Second, it's a communion. But finally, it's a hope. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You know, I've shared this with you before, but many of you are new, so I'll share it again. It's fascinating how, mo- how important food is in the scriptures. Have you ever noticed that? God made humanity, and he put him in a garden full of food. He said, hey, don't eat of those two trees over there. And what'd they do? The first sin was eating. (laughs) Then what does God do? He recreates humanity with Noah. It's interesting. Noah starts with a judgment of God upon the earth, but he resurrects humanity. It's a going through the waters of death into life. And what is the first thing Noah does? As a second typological Adam, he builds an altar. And he offers sacrifices for God. All over scriptures, what are altars? They are places where God and humanity have a barbecue. God likes the smell of the food offered to him. It's what he eats. But then normally there are parts of it that the people get to eat as well. Then it's interesting, Noah then plants a vineyard. And then he gets in a bunch of trouble. (laughs) It's normal. Noah's awful. Um, Then what happens? The Passover, a meal. Then what happens in the wilderness? Manna from heaven. Then what is the hope of the promised land? A land flowing with milk and honey. And also vineyards all over the place. Then, in the the ministry of Christ, the very first miracle he does prefigures his final miracle, He turns water into wine at a wedding feast. And we'll see in a minute. What are we waiting for? A wedding feast. Then what does he do? He feeds the multitudes. He multiplies bread. 
and then proclaims, hey, just so if you don't realize it, I'm the bread of heaven. And all next week, we're going to talk about what does it mean for our souls to eat Christ? That's going to be an interesting week, I promise. Then what happens? Then he gives a table, a Eucharist that we've been celebrating ever since. And he says, hey, here's how you pass the time between when I ascended and when I'm returning, do this as often as you gather until he comes again. And then when he comes, what are the images that are given? What are the images that are given? Well, next week we're going to see that we get to finally eat of the tree of life forever. But we also see there are two banquets, or it's probably one banquet. It's a wedding banquet on top of a mountain. Look, turn with me to the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, 6 through 9, one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, and then Isaiah 25, 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. I've shared this with you before, but I preached that passage on the worst day of my life. At my little cousin's funeral, I shared that. The last conversation I had with them were, Timmy, will you do our weddings when we get old enough? And I said, yeah, of course I'll do your weddings. And I've realized, hmm, I'll see you on a wedding day. I'll see you in a white gown, but not your wedding day here. The day that we'll all share as we await our groom. And yet, how do we pass the time? How do we wait for that day amongst this life of tears, this life of grief, this life of loss. We celebrate it together. We celebrate our hope that tears will one day be dried, that lost relationships will one day be mended, that death does not win. You know, I love weddings normally have to work at them, right? I'll do your wedding. Don't act like I have to work. But you know what I like the most? I like the party after. It, well, as long as their parents aren't Baptists. 
Because then, <laughs> then I can have beer at it. <laughs> that, was, that was mean, but it's true. <laughs> Why? Because, ugh, oh, a wedding banquet is just so fun. It's just so fun. It's good to be me here with you. It's good to be you here with me. It's good to be us here together. And it's good to be us here with the groom and the bride. And that's the image of the new heavens and the new earth. That we get to be together in festivity and joy and laughter and celebration. Glorying in the one who brings us there. Glorying in the one who, who won us that place. Who accomplished that gift for us our great groom, Jesus Christ. Eucharist is a time to remember. It's a time to commune. And it's a time to hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great supper that you've given us. Would you remind us that we are secure because of the blood of your cross? Would we commune together as you bring us into your very presence? And would we hope in the day that is ahead where you will wipe away every tear and bring us into your eternal joy. To the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.